0: Hello, data enthusiasts. This is Chris Detzel and I'm Michael Kern. Welcome to Data Hurls. We are your gateway into the intricate world of data where AI, machine learning, big data, and social justice intersect. Expect thought provoking discussions, captivating stories, and insights from experts all across the industries as we explore the unexpected ways data impacts our lives. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and excited about the future of data. Let's conquer these data hurdles together. All right. Welcome to another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. How you doing, Chris? Pretty good, man. I'm really excited about uh, today's guests. But before we go into the guests, I've got a great vacation coming up to France in a couple of weeks. So I'm super excited. Anyways, go ahead. Oh, I'm so jealous.
1: Uh, That sounds amazing. I, you know, and one of my coworkers just got back from France too. And it's like, Kind of thinking to myself, maybe I should have booked a bigger trip this year. I don't know. I'm like living vicariously through everyone else. But regardless, today on the show, we've got Lauren. Lauren Maseo. how are you?
2: I'm doing great, Mike. How are you?
1: Doing good. Doing really good. Uh, it's a little hot here in my office. I'm in a new office this time around, so there might be a bit of an echo. Um, probably about 80 in here, so we got to figure out how to tweak the, <laughs> tweak the temperature. Oh, my God. Um,
2: it is uh, it is close to a 100 degrees here in DC today, and it is 60. Oh
1: my degrees gosh.
2: in my apartment and I will not go higher than that.. <laughs> I'd, I'd be unconscious.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so today we have a really interesting topic, one that I think was, you know before all of this large language model on the top front of everyone's mind in the data space, which is the data mesh and really governance around data mesh architecture. Um, so to kick us off, Lauren, for everyone on the call, can you just describe what exactly is a data mesh architecture and how is it revolutionizing the data landscape?
2: Sure. I'll, I'll kick it off by giving the caveat. I am not an expert in data mesh. No one really is, except Zemek Deghani who created the concept in 2019 when she was at ThoughtWorks. But I do think that there is a lot of merit to the idea of data mesh as a concept, and I think that's why it has caught on and why it has become, for lack of a better phrase, a trend in recent years. And I, I don't like using that word trend because I think it often denotes something that isn't going to stick. I actually do think there are aspects of data mesh which will extend far beyond the the wave that it rode for the last couple of years, and that's because the data mesh concept is really around managing data more as a product with consistent owners who manage the data in their respective domains, as you would a product with an ongoing life cycle, with data that needs to be consistently managed and updated for quality assurance, for uh, to make sure that it is meeting the goals of the people who need that data, whether it is colleagues, external users, or both. And when we look at that from an architecture perspective, what we're looking at is architecture which is built to serve data domains which exist as separate data lakes with their own data dictionaries, but then they all hook up to this one mesh catalog, which is also in the data mesh. And then you have your consuming apps, and those consuming apps are what hook up to the mesh catalog. So in real time, what this looks like is that people in using the consuming apps are able to get data from the respective domain data lakes because they hook up to the mesh catalog which is kind of the middle person in between the data the respective data lakes and the consumers and you might be thinking what's the value in this and the value is keeping the data clean consistently managed and all in one place and that last part I think is really crucial for practical reasons I've heard people say at meetups, at, at birds of a feather sessions, at conferences, that data mesh is more of an idea that it's too theoretical and the benefits are not really tangible. I would argue that having all of your data exist in the same architecture is a very tangible benefit because if you have worked with data or especially client data, it exists anywhere and everywhere and therefore nowhere. And if you ask where did this data set originate, you often get I don't know, and you have to go on a goose chase. And so I think there's a lot of hell you just in having all of your data exist in one place, let alone to, ha- to having it be consistently organized and managed in a way that is more visible and easy to access.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about it kind of like what a project manager's job is to engineers, it's like to rally everything together to be a centralized funnel of communication. And, you know, I, I kind of am in the same mindset, you know, when I think about these large enterprises and for everyone on the call, like data mesh as a concept, I think is generally we're talking about large enterprises, you know, where you've got hundreds, if not thousands of people working on these different sections of data that they own and how do they flow up and communicate to one centralized governed repository so that everyone else in the business can benefit from the goods that they've produced as a product. Um do you believe it can work and have you seen it in practice, I guess, is the first thing. You know, I'm, I am I believe it can work, but I think it's also one of these things like Jira and like Scrum methodologies where it takes a heck of a lot of discipline to get something like this up and running effectively.
2: It does. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of resources in the form of both employees and money. And I can't discount that because we are... In an era of more penny-pinching in tech, and so I I would be a little dishonest to say that this is easy to do or that it is Uh something that's accessible for every organization because I don't think that's true. Having said that, there are examples of organizations implementing it. When I give a talk on data mesh architecture, I use the example of J.P. Morgan. Uh, They use AWS to implement their own data mesh architecture. And there is a blog post online on the AWS blog, which shows visibly how they were able to set it up. And it it shows very clearly how uh, someone in an organization, a data steward, a consumer, or both, could access data in a particular domain from that data lake uh, by requesting access from the data steward who's responsible for that data. They then The idea then is that they get the data they need faster, more efficiently from someone who knows it best rather than having to go through this centralized IT office where the ticket is probably manually logged and then maybe addressed within a week or so. Uh, And so the data mesh is viewed as an alternative to that that gives you more transparency and access to data from the person who knows it best. Having said that, a key part of data mesh is security. It's about deciding who should have access to which data because you should not have all of your data unfettered in the same environment for a free fall. Uh, So you do need access controls and security around it. But the idea is that the person who is able to give that information is somebody who is closest to the data. So if you are a VP of sales, you are an awesome opportunity. There's an awesome opportunity for you to serve as the sales data steward. If you are a, a customer success, VP, you are ideal to lead the customer success data domain and all the subdomains underneath. So that's how it can look in practicality. You, I mean, you'll notice that JP Morgan is a large multinational enterprise uh, with a large staff and a lot of cash reserves. So they have the ability to implement this, I think, until there is more appetite and consistency in data mesh. The products and uh, organizations that utilize it will tend to be large and fairly pricey. But as with anything, I think once there is more mass market for it, uh, there will be more players in the space and there will be more competition. And that includes products that might not offer the full suite of a tool like AWS, but they offer enough that a smaller organization on a smaller scale can use it
1: got it. Yeah. I think it's so interesting, right? That we're talking about large enterprise. We're talking about lots of cost and lots of management, but ultimately what that gets you is this data as a product service, right? Can you elaborate a little bit on what does that mean and what does it promote within the organization and why are more organizations like JP Morgan making the shift?
2: Yeah, so data as a service is how data has been really managed to date. It's typically an asset that an organization has and collects and can produces, and then it is managed in a centralized part of the organization. It's typically managed in IT, in legacy organizations, and that means that if anybody wants particular access to the data, let alone specific types of data, they have to go through this this body of people in IT who uh, then you know triage the requests for data as they come in and make decisions about who can access it or not, often on the fly. And if you think about an IT team in today's environment, they have a lot on their plate. If you're a CIO, data is only one of many uh, tasks that you have on your plate in the day-to-day. And so you're just not going to be able to give it the full resource suite that somebody else would if they're focused on it. And so that's a big part of why it's really important with data governance to spread the opportunity to make it happen uh, across the organization because uh, the one of the arguments I make in the book I recently published is that there is too much data produced and ingested today for one team or one person to manage it of course, the ultimate responsibility should still roll up to the chief data officer. But in order to succeed, you really need uh, collaboration and buy-in from everyone from your CEO down to your
1: stewards. That's really interesting you said that, you know, because I think there's kind of two ways that companies tend to go, right? They either silo because they're like the ownership, the centralized ownership team is not working out, Right. So we're just going to go do our own thing. And then we break all the governance rules. We break all this compliance and security. Or what happens is the data stored team says, we're going to have the most restrictive rules ever, and we're going to own everything. Then nobody can innovate. Right? Yeah. And so I think that what you were saying was kind of data as a product is this way to balance those through data mesh by providing access, but also maintaining ownership of data and making those stakeholders responsible. So can you tell me a little bit more about, you've got a centralized system, right? That everybody's feeding their data through. What role does governance play within this data mesh architecture and how does that work?
2: I think there are a few principles when we think about data governance, which apply to successful mesh architecture. And I do make the argument that you can't do data mesh without governance. Uh, Like any trend in tech, people try to implement data mesh without the backbone of governance behind it. And the reality is they're just not going to succeed in the long haul without it. Having said that, there are a few fairly easy things that folks can do in order to put a backbone of data governance behind the data mesh architecture that you use. So that looks like getting really clear on why your organization exists and the role that data plays in fulfilling that or that mission, uh, and I emphasize that first and foremost because I still see way too much of a disconnect between the data projects that teams work on versus what actually matters to the business. And then the data team wonders why they don't get invited to c level meetings and why they're not part of the strategy. Sometimes they it feel they feel like they're they're. Execution, you know, monkeys as a, who are who just it's like do what I say as opposed to having a strategic hand and and being able to use their very specific expertise to help guide the business. So there needs to be a much clearer connection between what your organization exists to do and how you use data to fulfill that mission. Uh, once you're clear on that, it gets really important to define the data domains that you have in an organization. And, and this is essential for data mesh architecture because you're going to stand up data lakes according to those domains and their respective subdomains underneath. So you want to make sure that you know uh, what key areas your organization collects data on, how they're categorized, what the subdomains are. Um, The example I often use is sales data, and then you're going to have data on inbound versus outbound leads, you're going to have data on quarterly sales. Those three things can be your subdomain under the sales domain, and then the idea is that you would have a senior leader in sales, maybe your VP of sales, what whoever it is, be the steward of that data, who can talk about things like data definitions, what different terms mean, what pieces, different pieces of data mean. They can they as the leader of that business domain can control access about in the mesh about who can access the data and what types of data. They can work with your CISO or your data team to set security standards and protocol and then to share that with their respective sales team underneath. And then you also want to define what data quality looks like per domain. Uh, and And ideally, you're going to have some consistent rules for data quality and how to cross-check that across all of your domains that all of your stewards abide by. But there's also a lot of variance across domains. And so then you want stewards who are having a really clear picture of what data quality looks like. And when we talk about data quality, we're thinking about the question, is the data in my domain fit and vetted for use and consumption by, by external users? And external can be in a company or outside of it. Uh, and those are the key things that I think any data governance strategy really needs to start with. And those are foundations that I see missed and skipped over pretty often.
1: You know, I think that, that it's so interesting, right, because, you know, I have so many questions about this. Actually, it's, it's you know, we have in this principle, we have someone like a VP of sales and it's up to them to define what quality means, right? For their business. And I kind of look at it like that term, what is it? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Is when you're working in data mesh, it is incredibly complicated to understand the shared needs of a business for a specific data set. Um, how, when we when we go through these concepts of data mesh and you you arm somebody like a VP of sales as being responsible for a data output. I guess the question that I have, and and I know that we can't answer this because we're talking hypothetically, but like, how can we entrust somebody like that who's incentivized on things completely differently from data mesh, and they just have to get the job done of closing deals to provide clean and consolidated data?
2: So I love that you asked this question because I think any... If you are having a culture challenge in your organization, the first question I would ask is, how are you rewarding people and what are they getting rewarded for? And that answer is going to tell you a lot about the challenges that you have. Uh, I do think that you need to reward people who serve in stewardship roles, uh, especially if they're helping set it up, if they're doing the lion's share of establishing this work. This is this is hard work. Uh the book I wrote is a 100-page six-step guide, but I do not want to lead people to think that I am saying this is easy. This is actually very hard work that that does not often yield an immediate benefit. You're laying the foundation for years or decades to come and that it means that sometimes you don't often see the fruits of your labor until much later and so when you ask about incentive it being incentivized i do think i say this in the book i you need as the cdo to reward your stewards in very tangible ways. Uh, And that can be spot bonuses. It can be writing the responsibilities of data stewardship into a role description so that they are positioned to get promoted uh, by doing extra and helping the organization. It can be that they get extra stock if you offer stock for serving in this role. Uh, And then I think the other part of that is to really emphasize that everyone's success in their job today depends on their ability to use data well and to use it accurately and so you're exactly right that the VP of sales it's a, it's a incredibly numbers driven profession it's incredibly competitive and uh, but people cannot close deals if they do not have accurate data and so actually i think that's a perfect example of a non technical role that is very well suited to do data stewardship on at least some level because uh, because their success in that work depends very strongly on having the right types of data to solve the right problems and the other thing that I'll add is that when I talk about involving non-technical folks in data stewardship and governance people say you're going to have a VP of sales, you know, create ETL pipelines or get into yep. Snowflake. And and that's really not it. I mean, in a data mesh environment, yes, the idea is that you can go in and request data depending on your use cases, depending on how much access you have, depending on visibility. The idea is that it should be a centralized architecture that folks can utilize. Having said that, that does not mean that you need to assume that your VP of sales is or expect that they will have the same level of expertise as a data scientist with a PhD in linear regression. The idea is that they set the standards for their data domain, in this case, sales. They they define what quality looks like. They define the subdomains according to their expertise in sales. And then the data team takes that knowledge, takes those standards, and that's what they automate and embed throughout the data mesh architecture. So it does require uh, collaboration between technical and non technical groups. It's inherently, uh, it's interesting because sometimes people say, "Well, if you're if you have uh, different data lakes, then you're actually." keeping the data siloed. And that's not really how it works because yes, they're organized according to domain and different data lakes. but again, you have all of that data from the respective domains flowing into the mesh catalog and then that's where the consuming apps pick it up. So I do so again, I think it's a two, it's a three pronged thing really. It's how are you rewarding people? How are you demonstrating that their success in their day-to-day depends on being data literate? And then how are you positioning them to work with the technical team and define to the technical team what those standards should be? Because again, the the expectation should not be that your non-technical people are doing work that they were never trained to do. That's not fair, Uh, but they should be working with the technical team to define what the data domain standards look like.
1: You know, it's so interesting because I think that The challenge is also, it's not even just about data quality, right? Or having the right data team. I think it's also like the sales team doesn't get incentivized uh, based off of LTV, right? Mm -hmm. They get incentivized on closing deals. And if you think about that chain from like marketing, you know, top of the funnel through to the product, to the people at the end, the customer support that are dealing with the customers that are churning. One of the biggest challenges, I think, and, and the things that we as like a collective data organization need to get better at is thinking about, you know, how can we make data better for the people who are pa- we're passing those customers on in that life cycle? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we don't do. I don't even know if this is really data mesh related, so I'll move on shortly. But like you think of like ESG and all these other things where the impacts are so latent that you never care about them and they meet it. You honestly, because of the incentivization structure, you don't even have time to really think about it. Exactly. Um, And so I just wonder, you know, when you're talking about data mesh, everybody has these specific needs and definitions of quality that are self-serving. And so one of the reasons I think that data mesh is still, I agree with it, but I think it's challenging is that There still needs to be that person in the middle that says, I can string all this together to create something that's valuable for the entire organization.
2: That's 100% accurate. And that is the CDO's job, as you said, because everyone... I mean, if you just look at the essence of a role, you know, the the marketing director in an organization, they exist to have a role that is very different from what the customer success director is there to do, from what the the engine the front end devs are there to do. I mean, they are all fulfilling very different roles. Oftentimes, their own goals will conflict with each other. That's where conflict comes in in an organization, and that really underscores that. I have made the point with this book and on on our conversation and and others to say that I I do not believe data governance is a technical problem it really is a cultural challenge that you have to solve by designing data governance into your systems into your architecture into your teams it it can't be one person's responsibility it has to be a shared ethos that is embedded across teams across across systems that you use across architecture and it is the cdo's job to paint that picture and to put it all together us because the idea is that you cannot do this work alone as the cdo no matter how senior you are because your success depends on everybody else doing what you advise but it is your job to show them how it all fits together and i think that underscores that the chief data officer is not a technical role i mean we often see in organizations that cdo's are very intelligent very accomplished data scientists the cdo role is not a technical role it is all about how do i use the data in my organization most effectively to solve the right business problems and to get the right people the right data at the right time this is the essence of the job, and I think it shows how crucial it is not just to involve everyone and to create an organization that is more comfortable using data, but also to show that you do need that point person to say to take ownership. And the biggest thing I see organizations struggle with when it comes to data governance: nobody wants to own anything, and uh, if you have that lack of accountability. There's relatively little that you can do.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, you know, this is the challenge of every CDO and probably the reason and one of the main reasons that their tenure is so short, right, is you get up on your soapbox, you say, hey, we're going to implement data mesh, everyone on board, and it's crickets. Everyone runs out of the room, right? How do you foster that data-driven culture? And, you know, what are the key steps that an organization should take when transitioning to this data-driven culture?
2: Yeah, I, I think there are a few. So first and foremost, I do not think that we as a industry do a great job of showing not only how data governance is tangible, but showing how it benefits people. I actually spoke at Data Architecture Online a few weeks ago, and someone suggested the term data enablement because to, to play with words and see what resonates because governance... Is just a bad word to a lot of people. And, and there, there are many people who just can't get over that that branding hump. And so even though data enablement is the same thing, framing it more positively with concrete examples of how governance is beneficial can help. I think also when we think about how to foster a data-driven culture, there's a lot of opportunity for micro-learning. So I see this with cybersecurity. I I have noticed a massive increase in phishing attempts and hacking attempts in people. I mean, people will text me or call me trying to impersonate my colleagues, my clients. Like, this happens a lot. And so our organization and many organizations, in the if they have Sizzos, they are training their colleagues and their staff to know what suspicious activity looks like online because they know that in order to protect the company, it's their job to educate the workforce and keep them smart and keep everybody on the same page about keeping our company safe. And so uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for data leaders to look at their peers in cybersecurity to see what they're doing on the micro learning front. That could mean anything from creating little quizzes to to test how many people uh, can identify inaccurate uh, or poor quality data. It can involve giving them, you know, badges and using, you know, game theory to try to uh, inspire competition. If that is something that would work for your organization as a motivator, it doesn't always work in that case. But I think there is a lot of opportunity, again, to create not just stewardship, but also to Make everyone more comfortable using data because for too long people have said, "Oh, that's not my job," and we can't really say that anymore. There's there are very few jobs today that are truly not touched or not affected by data, and the more literacy we as a society have about data, not only the better. I would say that literacy is crucial. I mean, if you look at how tools like ChatGPT have exploded. Relative to the amount of data literacy that exists today, it's already a huge problem. And so if we're going to have a chance at harnessing this technology effectively and even safely, we really need to take initiative to get everybody on board and start giving them the tools that they need to succeed. And that does not mean turning everyone into a data scientist, turning everybody into a technical person. That's not the point of the exercise. The point of it is to make the benefits of, of good data real and tangible, no matter your role.
1: Yeah, and, and when you think about, you know, just the amount of data that's been collected over the past decade, right? I feel like we've almost lost the brake pedal. Like, I'm not sure if we can stop at this point, Mm -hmm. the amount of, of data that we've just let out into the wild that we've collected, um, you know, the efficiency gains and losses that we've experienced over time. I mean, the environmental impacts, I wonder if we really can at this point, pull back without doing this complete overhaul, right? And. My other kind of thought on this is companies that haven't started to do this, is it too late? Like, will they, can they turn themselves around now? Or will a competitor, are they already like at risk of a competitor coming in and taking market share because they've built these practices from the ground up? I mean, looking and going through these transitions, you know, for some of these large organizations can take years just to get started. Yes, that's,
2: that's very true. I think, I mean, I totally think it's true. We have reached a tipping point with chat. I I would have even maybe said that we had prior to chat GPT, but it is, there is no going back now that chat GPT is out there. I mean, when people talk about banning it, I, good luck. There's no, that's not going to happen. Like it's, uh, and, and it happened without any regulation. It happened without a lot of, you know, thought as to what people and not just and, and saying it happened and became mainstream without a lot of thought means it sounds like I'm blaming OpenAI for that. Uh, what I actually mean is that ChatGPT now exists. And one of the, you know, if you're in the data world, you know that it's not just about the data you train it on, it's about what it gets fed, what it ingests, how it's trained in a consistent way. This is a huge reason why I really think the pro- data as product mindset is essential because. A project has a clear start and end date, uh, and a and a. But a, if you're managing an algorithm, there is a ongoing product lifecycle with data that is constantly ingested. That is going to affect the quality of the model. It's going to affect the output of that model, and that it, that does require more of a product mindset. And when we look at what people feed ChatGPT, uh, they are giving it very sensitive data uh, that they cannot get back. So if you read the terms of, I mean, the big example is those folks at Samsung earlier this year who fed ChatGPT proprietary data about Samsung products. OpenAI owns that data now, and that is proprietary data. And I am not a lawyer. I don't know if there is any legal recourse from that. Uh, My guess is that they're out of luck and so p and that goes back to data literacy i i really do not think people i don't think there was any malintent i also don't think people realize the consequences of doing something like that and i actually said on a podcast or two earlier this month that i think legally the the inroads we will see on the subject of data govern governance and and in litigation is not going to come from consumer rights uh, because as as Americans, we have very few, and that's being kind, federally uh, protected data rights. I think the real uh, the real success in law is going to come from copyright lawsuits uh, and people suing uh, organizations that take data that is proprietary and use it without permission. i I think that is where, most of the success in law is going to come from. And that means that if you take proprietary data that someone owns and use it to train a model without consent, uh, you could really get in a lot of legal trouble uh, because we really value, in in the States at least, IP. We value innovation and creativity and any organization that that utilizes that for commercial profit without getting the right permission we already know you, if you want to use a song in a movie, you need to get the rights. If you want to use something in a, in a commercial, you need to get the rights from that artist's estate, whatever, whatever it is. And I think that is where we're going to see the most progress in the short term, at least.
1: I, you know, I think that we should probably do a whole nother talk on this because we could easily cover a half hour, but, you know, to sum that up, Data mesh isn't going to solve this, right? This is a a whole nother topic of not who owns the copyright, but what are the rights to listening to something, you know, or reading something. And I think that that is the, the piece that is, we are, we still haven't really fully understood or defined how that works. If that's copyright infringement, what that means, you know, um, What it means to learn from something, from material that's publicly available or not, you know, these are areas that we need to uncover. And I think that in the coming year, you're going to see more and more litigation, like you said, Lauren. And uh, it's probably going to come for the people that are losing money, not from the government trying to protect its citizens.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, but as you as you said, though, not all is lost. And I, I do agree, you know, this is this is long, hard work of establishing data governance. But that does not mean that you sit around for four years getting everything set up while you but while your competitor builds a product for other people to utilize. It does mean that you. As you're starting your journey or even thinking, I mean, realistically, I think most people listening to this podcast are not starting a startup from scratch. They're thinking they're working in an organization that's established no matter how old it is. And they're thinking, "Okay, how do I take this and apply it to what I have? It requires a lot of introspection. It does require in design. We call it a discovery period of looking at what you have uh, and then making decisions about how to make more effective decisions about managing that data and again it is not easy work. Uh, it can be done and I would I would make the case that if you are a senior data leader in your organization uh, this is this is the essence of your job. It's figuring out how to manage data well in a strategic way that benefits the business but also benefits everybody who makes the business what it is. And data mesh architecture, I do believe, can play a role in it. It is not a catch-all solution. It's not a singular tool. Uh, And I, I do think there's a risk of people trying to stand it up without doing that essential governance work. But if people do invest in it as part of a bigger strategy, I do think there's a lot of merit to it. And I think the data as product ethos is here to stay.
0: Well, Lauren... Michael, this has been really great and a great discussion. Really appreciate you guys coming on. By the way, Lauren wrote a book. She talked about it. It's called Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up, Six Steps to Build a Data-Driven Culture. So just wanted to put that out there. We'll put that in the show notes uh, as well. But thank you, everyone, for listening to another Data Hurdles. Don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Chris Detzelhand. I'm Michael Burke. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Lauren.
1: Thank you.